Hello, everyone. You're listening to Mind Your Works Unscripted, a series for candid conversations with less preparation and more conversation. I am here with my co-host today, Jose Espinoza, and I am Nicholas Bremner. Uh, you want to do it again? No, that was good. <laughs> it's all about less preparation, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, for sure. That was, com- that was completely unprepared. Let's just like live by our tagline. So Jose and I are here stuck at home recording virtually as you always do. So things haven't changed too much for us. But in this complicated time, we thought that a good next episode, and it's been a while, but a good next episode would be talking about universal basic income. And UBI has been pretty common in the media, I would say lately. Um, It's not a new concept, as we learned doing a little bit of background research for this episode. But I think ever since Andrew Yang ran for the Democratic nomination for, for 2020, his platform was entirely pretty much on UBI and the, the benefits that it would yield to the American public and to the economy. It's, it's been a pretty common topic. Lots of articles about it. Um, so we thought we'd just talk a little bit about it today from uh, a psychological perspective, not from an economics perspective, because neither of us are economists. But I think there's a, a fundamental question of once people or, or if people get some kind of you know, universal stipend with no strings attached, what are they going to do with their time? Well, yeah, I, I think I think what you just said is is a is a great place to start. We're just gonna quickly set some ground rules as to what we mean when we're talking about a universal basic income. We're talking about something that is basically not contingent or anything. There's no strings attached, so there's no requirements like unemployment, for example. There is an income associated with that, but you're expected to be looking for employment. Same thing with other forms of welfare. Basically, this is what you would call something that is not being means tested. Everybody would basically have access to an income that would be at or above the poverty line. Right. So we're assuming we take away the need for people to worry about basic necessities, which would probably include housing, food, that sort of thing. Right. We think that's interesting because one of the concerns that people have had about something like universal basic income is that people won't work if you just give them the ability to basically survive. But I think it's an interesting question to ask, well, what does work mean if really the only reason people are doing it at all is to get by in our economies, just to be able to pay their bills? And I think that's an interesting point to start the conversation. What, what does it mean when we say Can work be more valuable beyond just the idea of, hey, it provides and it puts food on my table? It all depends, I think, how you define value. And maybe a good place to start the conversation off is how we value work in the society. And we've we've alluded to this actually in one of our previous episodes on on wage transparency as well. But our society pretty much associates the value of work with with economic viability. Not exclusively, but that's the primary indicator of a job's worth. So this has kind of resulted in many jobs that don't have significant economic viability, but maybe have very prominent cultural or artistic viability and value disappearing because they're just not feasible means of spending your time if you want to support yourself or support a family. So something like pursuing the arts or pursuing music or or something that is not immediately economically viable either falls into two camps, right? Either you are independently wealthy and that's something that you can do because you already have the means to do that. Or you end up in the, you know, in the typical role of the the struggling artist, right? Where it's someone that's just barely getting by to kind of spend their time on what they consider to be, you know, their actual occupation by doing other things, right? So this is where the the stereotype of people who go to LA to be in movies, who want to be artists, who want to be playwrights, et cetera, also work as, as waiters and also work at the movie theater because they need to find a way to basically survive in our economy. What does it mean when we take away that baseline and we allow people to express their work through these other kinds of cultural means? 
And I think the idea there is that if you do take away those economic stresses and uncertainties associated with not being able to, to jump into an occupation that pays you money, people are going to pursue things they're intrinsically motivated and passionate um, about doing. And I, I think the other, the other piece is that UBI is touted as a great social equalizer. So if you think about the arts, many people, as you just mentioned, Jose, they are able to actually dedicate their time and, and career to the arts because they have like a solid financial grounding and backing. Like it's, it's not uncommon for someone to succeed in the music industry because they have great connections through family. Like, you know, I mean, like Miley Cyrus, for example, is the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus, right? There's, there's obviously a, a connection there. So there's the, you know, the, the familial connection, but also the economic advantage. She probably wasn't struggling to get by during her original music career. And I don't mean to pick on Miley, but it's just a good example of, you know, someone who's potentially equally or more talented could not have come from such a, a favorable background. And with something like UBI, they would not have to worry about their basic necessities and they could focus on their craft and art and really develop their skills as a musician or artist or whatever. Right. So UBI would basically function as a way of equalizing or, or moving society more towards equality in that sense. And, and of course, we don't want to... Because I think some people would make the argument, well, obviously then those that is not work, right? Like working on the arts, et cetera, it's not work. I, I don't think that's necessarily reasonable, but I think you also brought up, uh, right before we started recording, you brought up a, a brief story about something that looks like a typical job, but is nonetheless one that is not paid well, despite having great cultural significance. Yeah, so the example we were talking about was um, an individual who, who lived in Ontario, who uh, worked for a really tiny museum, like a, a local municipal museum. It wasn't super well-funded, um, but this person was super passionate about their job. And I think the job never would never make over $20,000 simply because the the nature of the work wasn't like quote unquote worth that economically because the, the museum was only funded a certain amount. It's a small local museum, but nonetheless, it's really important to the cultural heritage of that, of that city. Um, this person loved the work. They were super passionate about it. And it just so happened that in this town, Lindsay, Ontario, it was one of the sites of a, a UBI pilot in, in Ontario. And so this wasn't exactly UBI as we described it. And we can kind of go into a little more detail about that. But basically this individual is saying how these UBI stipends enable this person to continue working a job that they found really enjoyable and they were passionate about and help the community and, and help maintain the cultural and, and history of the community. And they didn't care so much about making a ton of money, but the job didn't really pay enough necessarily to provide for all their needs. But that work supplemented with the UBI stipend was enough for them to get by and, and be happy on that. And so there, I think there's lots of jobs like that that aren't necessarily economically viable based on what the market determines is is truly valuable and, and adds economic value to society, but are still very valuable for our societies and, and for our culture. And I think are becoming extinct in many ways because they're being devoured by the market. Another great example of this is I've heard some arguments made for UBI in terms of gender equality and other forms of unpaid work, right? The idea that this is work that is being done usually by, by women that is nonetheless really valuable to society, but it's not being in terms of economic viability assessed or provided for in any way, right? So the idea of providing UBI would help formalize those things as being, those are legitimate roles that need to be fulfilled that now would all of a sudden become viable as actual occupations, right? It wouldn't just be, this person is not contributing to the economy just because they do unpaid work, right? And unpaid work is actually something that's really common in our society, right? And and it's something that usually doesn't receive any attention, right? And we tend not to call it work, right? I think we tend to think of work as something that you're being paid to do. 
Uh, otherwise, you're just volunteering or you're wasting your time, right? <laughs> wasting your time. Yeah, I mean, you definitely you, you, it, when you think about um, charitable causes, those sorts of things, right? Like you imagine the the ability for people who would want to pursue those kinds of, of roles in their lives being able to do so because they can think of their necessities as being fulfilled. Yeah, and it, it's unfortunate that it inherently devalues those kinds of occupations that you know do real social good. The one little wrinkle that I thought would be interesting to discuss, and this is maybe getting into I think a, a little closer to what we think of in terms of like straight up IO topics. Uh, and, and this is the idea of basically low wage work. Like how does low wage work come to exist, right? So one of the, the issues that UBI is supposed to tackle is that if you're providing everybody with their basic necessities through this basic income, you're ultimately gonna help eradicate the existence of the race to the bottom by employees to get the jobs that are available, right? So no, I won't work a fast food job, um, if it doesn't provide more than what I'm getting from my universal basic income in terms of right. survival, because obviously it's not valuing my time. So I think that's an interesting problem. And I was wondering from an IO perspective, how we would handle that, right? Considering that there's potentially a whole swath of jobs that would technically become non-viable um, in terms of why people would be willing to do those jobs or not. Like, is there something do you think that should IO be concerned about that or should we think that, well, yeah, those jobs should disappear. Obviously, they're not providing people with anything valuable in terms of either meeting their intrinsic needs, um, like we talked about in our previous episode on basic psychological needs. And on top of that, they're just not providing anything beyond what should be done by machines or be done in some other fashion, right? Yeah, that's a good question. It's an interesting issue. I would imagine that if you have certain jobs that are, let's say, low-skilled, uninteresting jobs that aren't they don't pay very well. UBI reduces their hiring pool or their recruiting pool for those kinds of jobs and they, have and they have trouble filling them. I think depending on the job, it may act as a forcing function to make organizations either find a way to automate those jobs and invest in technology because they're, they're having trouble actually getting people in the door or increase the salary or, or wage associated with that job. Yeah. And if, they, if the cost structure of the organization, if, if their operating costs increase too much, by increasing the wages, then it'll force them to find some other alternative means of, of getting that work done. Or potentially, and this is like a very IO psychology perspective on it, redesigning the work itself to make it more enriching and more interesting. Yeah, um, They have to find some way to attract people to that kind of job, either expanding the scope of responsibility or changing the way they interact with customers. I mean, so if we take like, like a McDonald's drive-through employee, if that becomes a you know, a non-viable form of, of occupation. Like, what do you think McDonald's would do to react to that? They could automate the, the drive-through process much more. Right. We already take orders from, from a screen or a speaker. You could easily drive up. They already have these screens inside of McDonald's. You could easily drive up and push the buttons, put in your order, and then someone could prepare it for you and just drop it at the window. So, I mean, it would, yeah. you know, you don't necessarily need that occupation. But there are others, like let's say like a grocery store cashier, where it may be harder to automate. I mean, I hate self-checkout. I think a lot of people hate self-checkout and there's just, <laughs> there's just something about um, having to, to struggle with your groceries on your own and scan everything and like deal with the discounts not showing up that maybe they wouldn't be able to automate the, the whole cashier process. So maybe they'll start um, treating cashiers better. Maybe they'll start paying them, them more money. Um, like Costco has uh, a much higher pay, like a much higher minimum wage than other retail stores and their employees are 
pretty pretty happy, I would say, in comparison to other retail stores as well. So, I mean, there's there's different options that organizations could pursue. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think basically organizations would be forced to find some ways to either a make their jobs more meaningful, and we have paradigms for this in IELTS psychology, right? We talk about job enrichment all the time. There's a whole model, the job characteristics models outlines exactly what are the kinds of things you're supposed to do to make jobs more engaging and more interesting and more fulfilling for people. We have ways of testing for this and ways of doing this. Yeah, Hackman and Oldham, 1980. Yes, that's right, 1980. In 1980, there was already a, a pretty good model for this. So there are definitely things that can be done now. Like you were saying, I'm not sure every job would fall under that paradigm, right? Obviously, some jobs are in some ways um, pretty rote. Right. And then it becomes a question, should those jobs exist or not? Nonetheless, I think it's an interesting problem for IO, given that we also have this blind spot. And this is something that we've discussed in the podcast before, where IO tends to fo focus on studying the really complex jobs, right? We tend to focus on management. We tend to focus on professional occupations, right? Rarely are jobs like low wage jobs, the typical drive through jobs, those sort of things really studied in much detail. And, and I think it would provide an interesting impetus for our, even for our discipline to start thinking about, well, if these jobs are becoming non-viable, is there anything that IO can contribute there either to help phase them out and replace them with things that are meaningful or to help them make more meaningful jobs? The typical uh, example is always the Harley Davidson example and the early, early Ferrari examples where they would have teams that, you know, you wouldn't have an assembly line set up, right? This person would actually build the entire transmission, mm. right? And that alone led to a lot more task significance, which is one of the typical job characteristics things. And task identity and those sorts of things where people feel more attached to their work, feel like their work is much more meaningful. Yeah. The critical piece there that you're, you're addressing is a task identity. So the, the feeling that you're actually creating a whole on your own, you're not just putting a couple pieces of the transmission together. You're actually making the transmission in that case. Yes. Um, which gives you, you know, a great sense of, of pride, right. And in, in, in the kind of work you did, there's a, a concrete product of your work. It's like if you build a birdhouse, which is not that difficult of a task, but if you're, if you're in charge of just putting one piece of the roof on the birdhouse, because that's the most efficient thing to do from like a time yes. motion study perspective, then pass it on to the next person who's in charge of putting a little peg beneath the hole for the bird to stand on. You pass it down. You've got a whole bunch of birdhouses and then like 15 really dissatisfied people with repetitive motion injuries eventually. It's like the, the yes, Winslow right. Taylor, Frederick <laughs> Winslow Taylor time motion study thing. It's like, and again, we're not tackling any new ideas here. We're talking about, you know, alienation from work. Uh, we're talking about things that have been around for a long time. But I think it's interesting how the UBI discussion has sort of brought these ideas back to the forefront. In particular, I think it's because we're realizing really quickly that maybe we don't need a lot of the things that we had before that just existed as an artifact of the economy. Ultimately, the UBI discussion is maybe not even about UBI. It's about that the basically the pandemic has kind of caused people to reevaluate a lot of the jobs that we have. Were they just artifacts of how our economy is set up? Are they just things that exist as a byproduct of a system that doesn't allow people to survive without working these jobs, right? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, if you think about the whole field of job design, IO psychology is only one perspective that you can take to design a job, right? There are other perspectives around you know, how much work is reasonable for a person to actually complete in terms of quantity, in terms of like the skills required, um, things like that. And I'm, I would definitely wouldn't consider myself an expert from like other job design principles. I find job design interesting, but I, I didn't spend my entire PhD studying it. That said, I think that focusing or, or having UBI may 
shift the focus towards making more enriching jobs for people rather than taking that just basic procedural kind of work breakdown thing like, hey, how many tasks is it reasonable to have someone complete during the day with no regard for their their psychological well-being or enrichment? It may force them to say, okay, well, if we want to attract people to this job, because we can't automate this, technology isn't a, a suitable substitute for this right now. How do we make this more intrinsically motivating or, or interesting for people so they'll actually apply? Like, how do we make this job fun or or better? It may force organizations to to think in that way. Um, and hey, we create more jobs for IO psychologists, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think UBI would would be obviously a pretty big, a seismic change really in in any of the societies that would implement it as yeah. kind of a baseline. Um, but it would be interesting to see the effects that it would have on what organizations do in order to overcome those things. Again, I don't imagine this would be something that we can implement, you know, one day to the next. Um, but it's something interesting to think about. I, I, I wonder what, what is your takeaway? What in terms of UBI? What's your stance um, in terms of what could IO psychology provide? Do you think there's something that we're ready to do here, or are we are we still lacking knowledge? I think there would be so many unforeseen changes if we implemented UBI at a federal level, like within any country, entirely that. Mm. Um, it would honestly be a just a kind of a wait and see like natural experiment sort of thing. Like let's see what happens. All these these pilots that have been run. So there there have been UBI pilots that have been run since the the seventies. I think um, they ran one in Manitoba back in the seventies. Uh, Finland ran one recently, like a, a fairly large one. Um, Canada, like we mentioned, Ontario ran kind of a hybrid one. Y Combinator is running pilots as well. But these are all pilots and. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I, I have a good sense of like what systems are. And if you have a small number of people subject to a pilot in a larger economic system or society where no one else is subject to those rules, those grand wide-scale changes to society are not going to occur if you give 2,000 people a stipend. They're going to occur if you give millions and millions of people a stipend. Yes. Um, because organizations and Societies are going to be forced to react in a very different way. So I think there's a lot of unforeseen consequences to to UBI that we're not going to be able to get at through pilot studies. And it's really hard to say what those are. I think some of the things we talked about would be examples of organizations forcing to forcing organizations to, to reclassify jobs and, and fix jobs, but there are so many others. Yeah, I agree. I think I think my takeaway would be very similar. I think we have an IO at least and really in a lot of disciplines, theories as to how we might deal with these things. But in particular, I think IO, we don't have a lot of knowledge about what we would do. If I, I think I think if you ask someone really specifically about what could we do about these low-wage jobs that might disappear, that might be in danger of disappearing, and should mm-hmm. they disappear or not, that we can leave that question aside for now. I don't think we have a lot of, of knowledge about that, about exactly what we could do. So I agree. I think it's one of those where unfortunately, unless we try it out at a massive enough scale where those changes have to be made, I think we're going to have a pretty hard time really implementing or really considering what the changes are going to be. It's too massive a change, right? Ultimately, since really the invention, like you said, of, of the of the Taylor procedure where you're breaking job down into components, we haven't really had that massive a change in how work is done in a traditional sense. I, I totally agree. Absolutely. I think like once once we kind of self-corrected from the time motion studies and realized that it was causing harm... I mean, and, and I think we're both speaking from the perspective of the academic literature, given that we're neither of us are, are practitioners who work in manufacturing organizations. 
I don't think I'm, I'm not familiar with how like Nestle approaches right. uh, like manufacturing job design and things like that. Right. Um, but what's interesting and, and to your point is that IO psychology used to be very heavily embedded in studying manufacturing um, and with like military occupations, like that's where much of its roots are. Right. We've since strayed away from that and focused on much more like white collar office jobs, technology jobs, finance, healthcare, things like that. Right. There's, there's a ton of research studying the knowledge economy. And I think less studying manufacturing these days, especially from a job design perspective. You're right. Um, so maybe it would maybe it would cause a shift back a little bit. I think that those fields do deserve attention, and I think that just like job analysis has kind of fallen um, out of vogue in the research, like research on job analysis has, has decreased over the course of the decades, right? Um, I think a focus on on job design yeah. and, and manufacturing by association has also decreased, but it might increase again once um, there's a need for next level job enrichment, like enrichment 2.0, finding a very innovative way of, of turning standard occupations into something that is, that is appealing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think if, if that's sort of something that piques your interest, the idea of what can we do to make jobs more interesting, uh, we'd really recommend you go and check out our last full episode actually on basic psychological needs. Now we talked about that in, in, in the context of the pandemic and what could people do uh, to basically still fulfill employees' basic psychological needs at work while they're at home, et cetera. But I think it's a good place to start. That theory gives us a really good starting place to think about what are the things that make people feel fulfilled, make them feel intrinsically motivated, make them feel like they want to engage in what their job is. And before before we cap this off, let's think about some of the, the just to pay, play devil's advocate a little bit with ourselves here, because I think this has been a very starkly pro-UBI episode from a psychological perspective. Some of the cases against UBI is that people will be just super lazy and won't actually put in any effort to, to find any work or contribute to society in any way. What do you think about that, that argument? And there, there are others as well. Um, most of the, the anti-UBI arguments come from an economics perspective, and I think they probably hold a lot of weight that it's expensive and you've got to find a good way to, to fund these things. But from a psychological perspective, what about you know giving people money and they're just lazy? Does you think that'll happen? Uh, I think that's really unlikely. So one of the concerns I know that has been brought up in terms of UBI has been the notion that people would s- spend their UBI income into, well, their UBI, I guess, and on non-essentials, like particularly like drug use, alcohol use would be significant problems. Uh, I found a review actually that looked at all of the, I think mm. I looked at 11 different pilot studies of UBI and basically found that there was no increase of people spending their, their UBI on things like alcohol and non-essentials. Um, basically, it all goes towards essentials. So that's one concern. I don't think we need to worry about people spending that money on things that they're not supposed to be spending it on. Also, I think we have pretty good theory and pretty good evidence that people do not just want to be lazy. Um, it's basically not a thing that humans are designed to do from an evolutionary perspective. Yep. Like I said, self-determination theory provides a really good basis for studying that. Goal-setting theory, which is something that we have a long history of, which is basically giving a person a goal, basically any goal forces them to engage in effort. It's just a thing that humans are built to do. So I think it's really, really unlikely that we would get vast swaths of the population who would get access to UBI, who wouldn't then do anything. I just think it's it's really difficult in terms of what I know from theory of motivation is that that would actually happen. I think there's going to be a very small percentage of the population who will just coast and do nothing. I think it's just kind of a, a cost of it. And I think you're right that the vast majority of the population will find some meaningful way to spend their time and add some kind of value to society. I mean, there's always outliers, right? We have outliers in our society now. 
right? They, 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 we have lots of people who break the, the patterns. But when we look at what the pattern would be for all of the humans in a, in a country, all of the humans in the world, it's really unlikely from what we know that all of a sudden society would break down because the reality is society wouldn't have been able to be built up if we didn't have of like basically an innate set of desires to engage in something productive. Well, I think something that was interesting about this discussion is this is probably the discussion where neither of us has had a really strong position. Uh, we think there, I have more questions now than I had answers before we started this talking about tough this. tough subject. <laughs> it really is, it really is. It's a very interesting one. Um, uh, we would love to hear from from you out there if you have some ideas or if you've tapped into some of the other research that is out there. We dipped a little bit into the the arguments for and against universal basic income. I think there are some really good, interesting white papers out there from economists as to how this would work or why it wouldn't work. It's I mean, it's like Nick said, it's something that's existed for a very long time. And it's a, it's an argument that's been going on in the literature for a very long time. But unfortunately, some of those are just so advanced that I... Uh, do not have that, let's say, like the expertise to really comprehend them thoroughly. Yeah. To put it in perspective, um, Nixon almost passed a UBI law or policy. I think it was signed by a thousand economists or something and then decided against it. And then also Hillary Clinton considered basing part of her platform on UBI in the, in the latest election. It's, it's obviously a difficult subject to really come down on because there, there, are, there are lots of unforeseen implications. I think at a at an individual level, societal level, like macroeconomic level, like it's 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 a supremely complicated topic because in some ways it goes right down to the very the very root of how our society is structured. Uh, I mean, at least at least how most Western societies are structured, right? Where we're ultimately being driven by the economic value of work and, and exactly what does that mean and how does that interact with all the other things. But I think it's something it's a discussion worth having, and I and I really hope that that over time IO starts paying more attention to it. I think there is quite a, a well of knowledge that IO could draw on to add to the conversation, but I, but it's not something that I see. I mean, when we attend conferences and, and we do so fairly often before um, all of the COVID-19 stuff happened, <laughs> um, it's not something that I saw really on, on, on many talks or many presentations. The explorations, either theoretical or, or, or statistical in terms of what could UBI do or how it could be done, basically. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. I think that we've been left with more questions than answers, but <laughs> it was an interesting discussion nonetheless. If, you, if you've got a perspective on this and want to share with us, um, you can check out our website at mindyourwork.io. You can also tweet at us at mindyourworkpodcast. I think that's it. Those are our two places, right? Oh yeah, we've got email too. Yes, we do. You can send us an email at mindyourworkpodcast at gmail.com. And that's how long it's been since we ran an episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we hope to start doing these more consistently. Obviously, I think everybody's lives have been affected uh, by what's going on in the world. And, and obviously ours has been as well. But, but we hope that, that everybody's out there doing okay. Mm -hmm. we'll, be, we'll be coming back with what we think are a few interesting topics to discuss. I'm Nicholas. I'm Jose. And we'll see you soon. What's up, Kojak? <laughs> yeah, I can see him here. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just comes up and just drops a toy on your shoulder. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, go play with with Sam. <laughs>